Uh, thanks very much. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's a delight to be here in the heartland. I'm not sure uh, how many of you realize that I grew up in Michigan, um, which is near here. Uh, and uh, I, uh, waves of uh, pleasure and comfort always come over me when I have a chance to visit a big Midwestern state university. Since I am a graduate, an undergraduate graduate of Michigan State University, and was actually around at that big game 40 years ago between Notre Dame and Michigan State, and uh, things ended up a little differently uh, for Michigan State on Saturday, but I guess they ended up pretty well here at Ohio State. Today I'm going to talk about American democracy uh, and about an aspect of it that uh, has long been considered distinctive, uh, as we all know, uh, American democracy has long been an object of emulation and commentary as well as critique by other uh, nations of the world and from intellectuals all over the world, at least back to the time that Alexis de Tocqueville and other Europeans visited the United States early in the history of the republic. Uh, at times, people have admired our constitution, at other times, our early commitment to uh, universal suffrage for white males, uh, but um, probably the most often commented upon and celebrated aspect of American democracy has been the proclivity of Americans to organize and join voluntary associations that shape and supplement the activities of government. But I'd like to suggest that even though that's long been noticed and celebrated about American democracy, I'm not sure how well these voluntary associations have been understood. Uh, particularly, our, our view of the past has been hazy and at times romanticized, uh, so that uh, we haven't had a very clear perspective on exactly what has changed in the most recent period, the last 40 years, which has, by all accounts, been an amazing period of transformation in American civic democracy. In fact, between the late 1960s and 1990s, Americans launched more nationally visible voluntary associations, that is, groups not directly mandated by government, not directly tied to simply an arm of business, groups that, other than political parties and churches, that people could voluntarily join as members or as affiliates, more of those were organized than ever before, but late 20th century Americans also stopped being such avid joiners, especially because they pulled back from organizing and participating in membership associations that bridge across places and bring citizens from different occupational and class backgrounds together. That's what I'm going to be talking about. In my remarks, what I'm going to do is succinctly characterize this great transformation, give us a bird's eye view of what's changed since the middle of the 20th century, talk very briefly and schematically about why the Great Transformation happened, and then dwell a little bit more on the consequences, the so what, what difference it makes for uh, agendas and participation in contemporary American public life. So let me start by taking us back to the period in the middle of the 20th century, around the 1950s, the 1960s. If someone dropped in at that point and asked what were nationally organized voluntary groups like, if they simply counted up the sheer numbers of them, they would have found that 40 to 50 percent were business associations, associations of business people or sometimes associations of business or businesses, 
often with their headquarters in Washington, D.C. Uh, and that explains why around the middle of the century, a lot of political scientists and political sociologists thought of America as a business-dominated uh, polity. But if you took a, a different angle of vision on voluntary groups in mid-20th century America and asked not which were the most numerous category, but which were the category of associations that the most individual citizens were affiliated with, and again, apart from churches, we're going to leave aside churches, they're always big, and they were and they are, but apart from churches, uh, in fact, compared to the citizens of Britain and Germany, which are the other two advanced industrial nations that were included in the pioneering survey study of civic participation and attitudes conducted by Gabriel Allman and Sidney Verba in 1963, the, the civic culture, uh, apart from those, uh, in comparison to those two countries, mid-20th century Americans of both genders and all educational levels, levels were more likely to join and hold office in voluntary associations and furthermore, the kinds of voluntary membership groups that they were likely to join in very massive numbers uh, were a little different from the British and the Germans. They were, less, they were no more likely to join occupationally based associations and social and charitable groups, but Americans were unlikely to claim one or more memberships, let alone officerships, in church-related associations of various kinds, in civic political groups, in fraternal groups like the Moose, the Eagles, the Elks, and various military veterans associations. Uh, the way I like to think of it is that as late as the early 1960s, Americans were avid participants by the millions in what I call fellowship associations, groups that tended to emphasize and express solidarities among citizens or among brothers and sisters under God who saw themselves as joined together in moral undertakings. In 1955, more than two dozen very large membership federations enrolled between 1 and 12 percent of the American population. You may say, how do you know that? Well, my colleagues and I conducted a many-year study of all of the associations that enrolled 1 percent or more of American adults at any time between 1790 and the present, and we can tell you in each decade how many associations and which ones they were that enrolled such large numbers of people. Anyway, around 1955, there were more than two dozen of those very large membership federations, and they were, almost all of them, rooted in dense networks of state and local chapters that gave them a presence in communities all across the nation, certainly massively present here in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, where uh, various meetings of these uh, religiously affiliated groups, fraternal groups, civic associations and veterans associations and women's associations were held regularly at the state and national level as well. Now, looking back into the past, before the mid of, middle of the 20th century, the business associations and professional associations that were so numerous in mid-century had grown up mainly with industry in a modernizing America during the 20th century. But the fellowship federations that were so distinctive to America actually had much deeper historical roots. Some of them were launched in the period between the Revolution and the Civil War from the early 19th century on, and large numbers of them were launched between the 1870s and the 1920s in that organizationally explosive period that grew out of the Northern victory in the Civil War. As associations spanned the United States, fanned out across the country, organizing state and local chapters in every nook and cranny of a growing nation. 
It was that stock of associations that were still flourishing in the middle of the 20th century, although some particular ones rose and fell. Now you might say, well, if these were morally oriented fellowship federations, what did they have to do with politics? Actually, although some of these associations may seem to have been apolitical, they were often involved in public affairs. Uh, my research group and I estimate that between half to two-thirds of the 20 largest membership associations of the 1950s were directly involved in legislative campaigns or public crusades of one sort or another. That's obvious for groups like the AFL-CIO Trade Union Federation or the Federal Farm Bureau Federation. But beyond that, the PTA and the General Federation of Women's Clubs were active in a variety of legislative campaigns having to do with educational and family issues, but also often with foreign policy issues. Um, uh, the Fraternal Order of Eagles, uh, which was big here in Ohio, by the way, and still probably is a presence here, championed the Social Security Act of 1935 and other federal social programs. The Grand Eagle actually received one of the pens from Franklin Roosevelt when the Social Security Act was signed. And of course, the American Legion championed the GI Bill of 1944, which is one of the most generous social policies uh, ever uh, devised in, in the United States. Well, if that was the picture in the middle of the 20th century, a coexistence of many business and professional groups with fewer but very large uh, fellowship federations, um, suddenly things changed after that. Between the middle of the 1960s and the 1990s, three intertwined transformations fundamentally remade the American civic universe, and I'll be quick about them. First, business groups continued to proliferate in absolute numbers, but they, uh, as the total number of nationally visible associations in America went from about 6,000 in 1960 to 23,000 in 1990, and it's remained roughly at that level since then. Business associations went from being about 42% of all of those nationally visible associations to about 17%. Meanwhile, social welfare and public affairs associations, including a lot of the kinds of groups that we think of as environmental groups or groups contending over the public good uh, or pro or anti-abortion uh, groups, other groups of that, rights groups of various kinds, those went from being 6% of that smaller associational universe in 1960 to being 17%, roughly equal to the business proportion by 1990. So the balance of organized voice in U.S. public affairs shifted markedly in the late 20th century as many new kinds of associations came to be heard speaking for more causes and constituencies than ever before. So that's transformation number one. Transformation number two is that simultaneously the once hefty blue-collar trade unions and fellowship federations that enrolled men or women across class lines including many blue-collar and lower white-collar men and women, went into sharp decline. That fact has been aptly documented in the research that I've done, Bob Putnam has done, and others. Bob Putnam tends to argue in Bowling Alone that membership associations declined across the board in late 20th century America. My research suggests that actually professional associations have retained their membership much more than the ones that include people across class lines. And in fact, there are more professional associations. So professional membership, membership in professional associations is actually growing um, if you count all kinds of groups uh, for highly educated Americans. But those cross-class federations were uh, declining and closing many of their chapters. 
The third and final, final transformation is that as these shifts in the organizational universe occurred, the newly proliferating kinds of groups, especially uh, the advocacy groups for public interest causes of various sorts, uh, were mostly smaller in size, uh, memberships in the tens to hundreds of thousands, uh, rather than in the millions, as some of the biggest membership federations before 1960, although there are exceptions like the gargantuan AARP with its 35 million members. Um, uh, and these rapidly proliferating medium-sized associations tend to have uh, members without chapters, uh, members without meetings, and to best invest heavily in professional staffing. So uh, the way to sum it up is that over the past four decades, American associational life has become more pluralistic, less business-focused, and at the same time has shifted away from popularly rooted membership associations and toward professionally managed organizations, many of which have no members or chapters at all. Now, to the degree that there's any exception to that big trend I just sketched, it's on the right, on the conservative side of American civic life. Professionally managed advocacy groups have proliferated across the board, but conservatives have, during this era, done more than liberals to renew or reinvent popularly rooted federations. The National Right to Life Committee, the Christian Coalition for a while, the National Rifle Association all have been or are extensive chapter-based membership federations that have flourished uh, for a period in uh, recent times, whereas the only unabashedly liberal membership federation that has grown in recent decades is a teacher's union, the National Education Association. Well, if that's the kind of picture of the great transformation of the late 20th century, why did it happen? Um, some of my colleagues that are involved in civic engagement research tend to point to one culprit, uh, more TV watching. And I think that that's a large part of the story, although uh, it's a complicated part of the story. It's not just a matter of couch potatoes. But I would put forth that any time we see a transformation as massive as the one that occurred in late 20th century American civic life, there are multiple causes at work multiple things coming together uh, in, a, in a critical conjuncture uh, when um, a combination of forces at work. And so let me just mention some of them. In this case, one of the uh, forces at work was a critical event, the Vietnam War, uh, which coincided with converging social, political, and technological trends. The Vietnam War mattered because it broke the tradition, the long-standing American tradition of cross-class male solidarity uh, built around the celebration of military participation. Throughout all of American history, uh, the aftermath of big wars led lots of men to join male, uh, male brotherhood associations and either celebrate the role of those who had served the country in war or wish they had, in the case of a lot of the sons of those people. But Vietnam was a losing war. It was a war that was profoundly unpopular, particularly with educated young men and women, and it drove a wedge in the associational world between social strata and between younger and older men. The other changes, uh, let me go over them very quickly. The rights revolutions had a big impact uh, because 
those associations that flourished through so much of American history were cross-class, yes, but also built usually around one gender role. They were either for men or for women, and they were almost invariably racially exclusive in the sense that they excluded African Americans. There are a few exceptions, but not many. So with the dawn of new racial attitudes following the ferment of the Civil Rights Revolution, and with the transformation in ideals and realities for women as the feminist revolutions unfolded and more important as many women found themselves needing to go into the workplace for economic as well as idealistic reasons, uh, the supply of younger people in particular who found the older gender and racially segregated associations attractive really dwindled very quickly. And furthermore, uh, male associations were hurt because there were no longer those ladies to conduct the dinners. Uh, that were really an important part of a male associational life. I mean, the ladies just weren't there. And that's a continuing problem. You know, nobody really has. <laughs> nobody has any wives and nobody has any ladies now. And uh, it's a problem. Uh, uh, and furthermore, the civil rights struggle raised a lot of questions about the forms of organization favored by old line chapter federations. Because across much of U.S. civic history, membership associations trumpeted constitutions that paralleled the U.S. federal government and celebrated representative modes of decision making. But such structures traditionally embodied compromises between the racially segregationist South and the rest of the nation. So to this day, many Americans whose youthful political consciousness, like mine, was shaped by the right struggles of the 1960s and 1970s tend to think of majoritarian institutions and practices as cumbersome, bureaucratic, unresponsive and maybe, you know, racist or uh, somehow uh, domineering uh, because they remember that back then those institutions were associated with unresponsiveness when faced with sudden demands for racial and gender equality. So uh, uh, the uh, Vietnam War and the rights revolutions are part of the story. Another part of the story is a new political opportunity structure. We like to think that associations and social movements change and place demands on government and then government changes in response. But it actually works the other way as well. And in the 1960s and 1970s, at, faced with some new demands from some of the uh, social movements from below, the federal government suddenly became much more active in social and economic life in the United States than it had been before that. Hugh Hecklow called it the age of improvement. It was an era when the federal courts suddenly became active in adjudicating all kinds of uh, cases in many spheres that they had left alone before. Uh, it was an, uh, a time when the federal government, uh, the bureaucracy of the federal government expanded and new agencies got involved in enforcing civil rights, in promoting um, uh, a healthier environment and, and requiring uh, reports to measure environmental impact, and where congressional staffs uh, highly educated professional staffs expanded enormously. All of that created a whole series of nooks and crannies that were a very favorable set of levers for groups that could organize themselves with paid professionals, with lobbyists, with media experts, with lawyers on their staff. And so it created a premium, actually, on founding associations with that type of professionalized structure and provided less access and less leverage for the old kinds of membership federations. Indeed, uh, 
Understanding changes in the political opportunity structure um, can help us to understand why conservatives remain more reliant on traditional forms of volunteerism. It's hard to imagine or remember this, but between 1965 and 1980, when professional advocacy was taking hold as a prestigious associational model, conservatives often felt excluded from the establishment in Washington, D.C. Yes, some of you who are young, it was like that uh, back then. Uh, and although this changed, of course, as we know, conservatives originally did not see as many opportunities as liberals to mount lawsuits or lobby Congress and the executive agencies. Instead, organizers in the Christian right, the anti-gun control movement, the pro-life movement, and around the populist edges of the Republican Party, often responding to things that they thought the federal courts or the bureaucracy had done that they found outrageous, um, turned to state and local organizing uh, as an alternative, combining that with the new professional techniques for national fundraising, but thereby maintaining more of a foothold in a transformed version of the older forms of membership associational mobilization. In recent times, that's changed, and now we see liberals, to some degree, turning to these kinds of state and local organizing. The final ingredient I'll just mention very briefly, and that is new technologies. Yes, television, but also computerized technologies that made it possible for professional groups with offices in New York City or Washington, D.C., to mount campaigns to uh, portray their image and their cause or, or perhaps use computerized mailing lists to recruit um, large numbers of, 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 of passive members who would send in checks. Uh, in the old days, through much of American civic history, the only way to build a nationally influential association was to travel all over the United States forming chapters of dues-paying members and meeting regularly with those chapters. Uh, Frances Willard, who organized the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the 1870s and 1880s, was never at home in Evanston, Illinois. She was always on the train because she visited every city in the United States of population 5,000 or above at least once during that 15-year period. But uh, by the time we get to the 1970s and the 1980s, someone like Marion Wright Edelman, newly arrived from Mississippi, got the inspiration to found the Children's Defense Fund and turned to private foundations for funding and then recruited expert staffs of researchers and lobbyists to use uh, these more centralized techniques uh, to wield influence. Uh, the Ford Foundation, as Craig Jenkins has documented, was very much involved in promoting, sometimes unintentionally, some of those kinds of transformations. Or alternatively, like John Gardner, the founder of Common Cause, you could get in touch with a few rich friends, get some money, go out and buy some mailing lists, and launch a mailing list uh, association. So another way of thinking of it is that the very model of civic effectiveness was upended from the 1960s on, because no longer did civic organizers think of constructing vast federations and recruiting interactive citizen members. When a new cause or a tactic arose, activists envisaged opening a national office and managing association building as national projects from the center. And this has changed a bit, emerging times with the internet, it doesn't have to be as centralized but it can still be a matter of a few people reaching out from an organizational center. Contemporary organization building techniques encourage public interest groups, just like trade and professional associations, to concentrate their efforts in efficiently managed headquarters, sometimes located close to the federal government and the national media, 
even a group aiming to speak for large numbers of Americans does not necessarily need members, and it certainly doesn't need to hold regular meetings where people can talk with one another or talk back to the leaders. Well, if that's the kind of transformation that occurred, especially between the 1960s and the 1990s, so what? Who cares? Should we be worried or happy about this? Obviously, a lot of pundits and analysts have been weighing in on that question. The optimists argue that American democracy has been enlarged by social movements and advocacy groups fighting for social rights and for fresh understandings of the public interest. And many of them suggest that Americans are finding ways to reinvent community too by joining flexible small groups and doing occasional volunteering in their local communities, even as they send checks to advocacy groups uh, on the national stage. Now, many of the points that the optimists make strike me as true enough, especially when they're arguing with my friend Bob Putnam, who I would put in the pessimist category, a category of people who has suggested that American society is falling apart. Um, I think if we look very closely, uh, it isn't really falling apart. It's mostly reorganizing. But if we bring issues of power and social leverage to the fore within this debate, much of which has been conducted in remarkably apolitical terms, then I think the optimists are surely overlooking the downsides of our recently reorganized civic uh, life. Uh, they're justifiably pleased with the advances in social rights and citizen advocacy since the 60s, but they've failed to notice that more voices are not the same thing as increased democratic capacity. And the optimists sometimes do not see, in fact, usually they're blind to this, that gains in racial and gender equality can be accompanied by erosions of cross-class fellowship in democratic participation and representation. So I'd like to spend the rest of my uh, time, not too much, commenting on these two uh, worrisome aspects of the Great Transformation. Let me start with dwindling participation. As long-standing popularly rooted unions and fellowship federations have faded, and professionally run advocacy groups and business and professional groups have proliferated or held their own, avenues for citizen participation have, I would suggest, become more constricted. Now, scholars in political science and sociology have done a good job of establishing that a combination of resources, motivation, and mobilization explains who tends to participate in politics. Um, if you have high resources of money and education, if you um, are highly motivated, interested in politics, or if people ask you to get involved, that's when you're likely to get involved. Most of those factors favor the rich and the well-educated, but it is the case that broadly-based associations, from churches to trade unions and some of these fellowship federations I've described, can counteract the, the privilege-inducing side of that by drawing ordinary people into active participation and giving them resources of a combinatorial ability, organization, as well as motivation to participate. Back in 1892, a man named Walter B. Hill published a humorous article in the Century magazine. It was, it purported to be a letter to a foreign friend, probably somebody in France, explaining how the United States could be a country that encouraged every boy to aspire to be president, and as he put it, every American girl to be the president's wife, unquote. How could that be when, in fact, there weren't that many public offices to go around? 
Hill answered the query by saying the great American safety valve, and that's the title of his article, is that we are a nation of presidents with an enormous supply of official positions at the state, local, and national level in a 1,001 societies. Back then, he knew what he was talking about because countless churches and voluntary groups of all sizes needed volunteer leaders. Indeed, the largest nation-spanning voluntary federations uh, in the early 20th century, as late as 1950, could have as many as 15 to 17,000 local chapters, each one of which needed eight to 12 elected and volunteer officers every year, and the next year they would need more. So millions of Americans were regularly channeled through these responsibilities where they learned how to run meetings, handle money, keep records, and participate in group discussions. And there were so many activists and leaders needed that there were opportunities for men and women from lower white-collar and blue-collar backgrounds, not just the elites. And local activists got their ways paid, subsidized by the membership, to uh, state and national meetings. Uh, these same groups spread motivation to participate in public life. Most groups uh, portrayed themselves as nonpartisan in an electoral sense, but at the same time they mounted uh, uh, constitutions and ran their affairs in ways that mirrored the operation of American government, so people learned about American government indirectly, and they urged ideals of good citizenship on their members, sometimes requiring that for election to membership. Uh, and they stressed that everybody had a duty to obey the laws, volunteer for military service, engage in public discussions, and above all, vote. Some of you may know that in our uh, time, uh, political scientists Alan Gerber and Don Green from Yale University have done studies, experimental studies, that show that people are more likely to turn out to vote in response to face-to-face -face appeals rather than impersonal phone calls or media coverage well, this was something that America's traditional associations knew even before modern political science uh, rediscovered it. Now contrast the workings of these traditional popularly rooted associations with today's professionally run groups. Certainly there are some, like the Children's Defense Fund, that provide voice for groups that otherwise wouldn't have it, the poor, the marginal, the young. But in an associational universe dominated by business groups and professionally managed groups, the mass participatory and educational functions performed by past groups may not be done anymore. Today, patron grants and computerized mass mailings generate money more readily than regular, regular dues paid repeatedly by millions of members. And volunteer leaders are not very highly valued when professionals can do a better job of uh, running uh, the affairs of the association and representing it publicly. In the case of mailing list organizations, most adherents are seen as consumers who send money to buy a certain brand of public interest representation. And what the mailing list associations are really looking for with those repeated mailings that arrive in your mailbox are not really adherents at all, but big donors. They are calling their list for the people who are likely to write the big checks in response to the requests. And in fact, if we think about it for a moment, the quest for big donors is a critical part of what's going on in our time, and it interacts in very pernicious ways with rising economic inequality. I don't think rising economic inequality caused this change in voluntary groups, but the changes in voluntary groups are interacting with it because we all know that nonprofit groups, 
professionally run associations, the universities of which we are members, are constantly holding rounds of fundraisers in which they look upwards in the class structure and flatter and engage and talk with people that they're hoping will give those big checks uh, to keep the operation going. A final uh, contrast with the path is worth mentioning. Uh, in the past, most men and women in various communities and states across the country joined voluntary associations because it was the fun thing to do because their neighbors were doing it. Uh, they joined for purposes of cultural solidarity and uh, recreation as much as for anything else. But once they got there, they might got, get drawn into a community product, a project. They might learn skills that transferred into politics. And they might be exposed to information about a legislative campaign. But today's associations, and this goes even equally for internet associations. I'll just preempt a question I know is coming in the question period require you to be to know what you're interested in before you sign up or before you contact. And so it is not surprising that empirical studies show that the people most likely to affiliate with professionally run uh, advocacy groups and associations are highly educated Americans who also usually have the rising incomes that are necessary to write the bigger checks that are attracted to those associations. So now, the final point I want to make goes beyond these participatory effects and asks what impact does all of this have on agendas of public discussion and legislation in our democracy? Here I'm going beyond the hard empirical evidence. There are strands of evidence here, but I'm taking the liberty to offer hypotheses along with reporting findings. I think there's a lot of evidence that civic changes have undercut America's capacity to use government for broad socioeconomic redistribution. It's pretty clear that the decline of blue-collar trade unions has contributed to um, declining capacity in the political system to debate and consider uh, legislation or that, that, that broadly distributes opportunity and, and security in the population. But I think it's also true that the dwindling of once huge cross-class membership of federations has had a similar effect. Uh, my favorite case of a surprising association supporting a redistributive measure is the American Legion, which was the author as well as the chief popular supporter of the GI Bill of 1944. It was a union-bashing, socialist-hating association that nevertheless helped to craft one of the most important pieces of social redistribution in American history, opening the way to 16 million Americans who served in World War II to go to college, to uh, uh, have home loans and business loans, and family benefits uh, as well. Uh, there's also been an ideological impact because traditional voluntary associations, because they were seeking to enroll so many members, looked for the middle ground. They tried to avoid the extremes. Whereas today's voluntary associations being smaller and looking for niches among the highly aware and the highly educated tend to dramatize particular causes and threats uh, in their efforts to outmobilize one another. So that changes the tone of public debate away from a search for uh, values and, I would argue, uh, social policies that in some sense touch the concerns and the needs of the vast majority. Perhaps the most intriguing empirical evidence on the distributive effects of recent civic changes appears in Jeffrey Berry's book, The New Liberalism. 
He did longitudinal research to show that professionally run public interest groups, and he's a big fan of those groups, have had an impact in a, in a democratizing direction because they've shifted public debates over many decades away from business concerns and toward upper middle class or middle class quality of life concerns such as environmentalism. But he also reported that liberal-leaning citizen advocacy groups have become less likely over time to ally with traditional liberal groups on behalf of redistributive social programs. And I quote, liberal citizen groups have concentrated on issues that appeal to their middle class supporters as the old left grew and grew, the old, uh, as the new left grew and grew, the old left was increasingly isolated. His findings are echoed in some new research that Kristen Goss, a, um, um, a professor at Duke University, uh, former student at Harvard, and I have done in recent years, in which we've traced women's voluntary associations and the causes they espouse over many decades of American history. The story among women's associations is that large numbers of new groups proliferated and became active in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but they ceased to champion the kinds of causes about broad social welfare, the needs of all families and children that had been the bread and butter of traditional women's voluntary groups in America, and switched their emphasis toward fights over women's bodies, basically uh, health, uh, sexuality, uh, and uh, abortion, uh, or toward advocacy for the needs of professional, highly educated women who are forging careers in the workplace. There's nothing wrong with those news causes. People like me wouldn't be here if they had not been espoused, but something has been lost at the same time as women's voice has faded on the broader issues of societal welfare and of opportunity and security for most families. So let me wrap up and open the floor for discussion. The bottom line in what I'm arguing is this. Variety and voice have certainly been enhanced in the new American civic universe forged by the organizing upsurges of the 1960s to the 1990s. In that sense, American democracy has been expanded. But the gains in voice and public leverage have mainly accrued to the top tiers of American society and this in an era in which our society has become more socioeconomically unequal since the 1970s. Because Americans who are not wealthy or higher, highly educated now have fewer associations representing their values and interests and enjoy dwindling opportunities and invitations for active participation in civic life. Uh, if these are the changes that have occurred, what can we say going forward? We can hardly hope or expect to return to the civic past as it was before the 1960s, nor should we want to do so because of the important gains in racial and gender equality and participation and the broadening of social voice and causes that have occurred since then. But we do need to look to America's longer civic history before the great transformations of the late 20th century for inspiration as we search for ways to reinvent some of the best modes of inclusive participation and cross-class brotherhood and sisterhood that existed in those earlier eras and combine them in creative ways with the gains in participation and gender and racial equality uh, uh, forged in the late 20th century.
I want to recover from a blunder that I made uh, at the outset, and that was, uh, of course, um, failing to mention the person who's ultimately responsible for all of us being here, and Neil, and the invitation to Theta and citizenship, Rick Herman, the director of the Mershon. <laughs> oh. uh, Theta, you want to just handle your own questions? Yes, I'll Go. do that, but I'd like, if people uh, have a comment or a question, I'd love you to introduce yourself uh, to me and to everybody here. Um, Yes, right there. Um, I, I, you mean in the current period? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that uh, a lot is going on in states and localities. It's more decoupled from what went on nationally than it was traditionally the case. I mean, we, I, we tend to think that in the past everything was local in America and then it became national. Actually, things were very connected across levels of society and government through much of American history and have become disconnected in the current period. Uh, I have a little bit of research in some other parts of this project that shows some windows into kind of publicly prestigious associations at the state and local level because we traced all the civic affiliations declared by Massachusetts state legislatures. Uh, they're, they're all recorded in their biographies every year, so we were able to trace them for 100 years. And we could see the, it's just like walking off a cliff after 1965. They just drop all these old traditional associations and they start declaring new affiliations. And the affiliations they declare are with state and local groups that mainly professionally run nonprofit social service associations. So I would argue that the picture in states and localities is often that the, the kind of um, space has been filled by nonprofits run by professionals that are serving clients rather than enrolling members. Uh, also, I think there's a lot of lobbying going on by professional lobbying associations that may or may not be affiliated with national lobbying associations, especially as functions have been transferred downward to the state governments. Well, religious associations always, I mean, if we're talking about churches, um, they, they have been and still are an important part of American uh, associational life. Church-connected associations traditionally were very, very important among these voluntary federations that I've described as brotherhood and sisterhood associations. In the current era, um, as we all know, evangelical churches and kind of intermediating associations connected to the conservative right have, have proliferated. And I think that, here, here's the way I would put it. it. It's ironic, but I actually think um, part of the reason that declarations of church affiliation are a more important part of American public life now, um, certainly on the Christian right, but even politicians in general, nobody wants to claim that they don't go to church or, or something. Um, um, Whereas if you go back to early 20th century America, there were lots of politicians who didn't claim to go to church. They claimed to go to the Masons and the Oddfellows, but they didn't claim to go to church. Um, 
So I think the fading of some of these non-explicitly church uh, associations that were based on showing you could be a moral person probably has given more prominence to church, especially in public life because of the, of the growth and mobilization of the evangelical Protestant sector, but also because politicians want some place that they can claim they're speaking to a broad cross-class audience or, or speaking with it. And uh, so churches are, are often kind of used for that purpose. Yes. Well, it's interesting. It could be. I mean, certainly, you know, in in the uh, in the African American civil rights movement, we saw that, and we've seen it uh, with the Christian evangelical movement um, to some degree, the Catholic Church. Um, um, I, you know, it is it is a, in a way you could say it's a setting where people can invoke can invoke a link between morality and uh, patriotism and public purpose. Uh, which many people have an enduring yearning for and which used to be done in a broader array of settings and is now uh, not as likely to be done there. I would be a little careful, though, because part of the rise of religious mobilization is connected to a shift toward um, political power in parts of the country that were not the same parts that were at the heart of this more traditional civic world. Uh, it's tied to the rise of the kind of white South um, which would have been the part of America that had the sparsest organization of these other kinds of associations throughout American history. After the Civil War, the white South never did catch up per capita with either the black South or um, Northerners, uh, which isn't to say that these groups weren't in the South. They were just sparser on the ground. Um, so it's, this is partly a shift of the center of civic gravity in the country and political gravity, not simply a replacement of one mode of affiliation with another, from another. Yes, back there, right there. You. Well, Putnam's research does suggest that about 10% of the decline in joining is uh, uh, associated with that. You know, I think so. I, I, I think especially the rise of kind of commuter suburbs segregated by class and occupation, although I would be a little bit careful because into the 50s and 60s as this was happening, a fair number of these federated voluntary associations were adapting to that. Um, and uh, I don't think that alone would have done it. Uh, when I say that traditional voluntary federations were cross-class, I don't mean that every single local lodge or local club was necessarily equally cross-class. They usually were to some degree, but they could be mostly white collar in one place, mostly blue collar in another, mostly one ethnicity in one place, one ethnicity in another, but they came together then in, in, in district and state and national meetings. Um, so I, th I think that's part of it, but I think you'd have to marry that with the changes in kind of gender and work uh, things, the um, um, and, and, the, and the huge, tr 
the huge political events that created a new uh, opportunity structure for elites. I mean, to not to put too fine a point on it, my social science model here, and I didn't want to talk in social science modelese, but my social science model here is much more elite driven. It's much more driven by the, the choices and uh, resources and opportunities open to elites um, than uh, a sort of a mass experience model would be. Yes? Well, I mean, these are all good points. I mean, the other thing that's happening after 1965 is a massive influx of, um, of new immigrants to the United States. Um, the, only, the only reason that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't kind of zero in on these as the single most important underlying cause is the following. If you go back and look at American associational history in the 19th, early 20th century, it's important to remember that these are periods of massive immigration of ethnically diverse groups all of whom organized voluntary federations with imitating the American Constitution and imitating every other group. I mean, I've got a thousand personal ribbon, ribbon badges in my personal collection, which I think the last time I came to Ohio, I went to the antique malls. Now you only find things on eBay, but I mean, uh, and I couldn't bring any of them because they would seize them at the airport because they have a pin, but they're they're like, you know, nine inches long. They have fringe on the bottom. They have the symbols of the group, the state and the local affiliation. Well, every ethnic group in America had those. They may not have all joined the same groups, but they all imitated one another. And furthermore, these groups were engines for managing a mobile society. I don't think it's widely known that the period of time in which Americans moved the most geographically was the middle of the 19th century. Not now, not after 1960. And part of the reason that these voluntary federations with the thousands of local chapters and the state and local and national parts were so appealing is that you could up and leave Massachusetts as a member of the Knights of Pythias and arrive in you know, Nebraska and there was a chapter, and if there wasn't, you knew how to found one. Um, so it was a way to be part of something consistent while you were hightailing it all over the place, which Americans have always done. So uh, I do think that it matters, by the way, that these kind of smaller towns have contracted, because certainly in the post-1960 period, they've been the place where these groups have sustained themselves the most. But as those folks left and went to the cities, they just weren't seeing things to join anymore, whereas in the past, they would have 
gone from the rural area or the rural town and they would have gone to the big city and joined another chapter of the same thing. Just the way people will do with churches still. I mean, if you're a Baptist, I don't know, Baptists are kind of decentralized, but I mean, if you're a Baptist, you probably will join a Baptist congregation in the new place you move to. Um, that's less true now, denominationalization, not, denominationalism is less important, but um, that's the way associations work through so much of American history. So simply the existence of movement, I don't think is enough to explain, even though it certainly is interacting with these other things uh, that we're talking about. Yes, right there. And highly educated. People in this room can't get off the hook. Right, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of the same changes have unfolded in the political party realm and in the political voice realm. Absolutely. And I, you know, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's one more thing that basically substitutes money and, 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 and uh, education. Uh, because the educated both know how to mount the messages and know how to hear them. Um, so an information-rich society and, a, and, a, and one where money, money can, can convey uh, both detailed information and the kind of vague images that sway everybody else, very much uh, a factor in both the political party world and, and in the voluntary association world that I'm describing. Uh, so. Well, I don't think that redoing that jurisprudence, you can, you're the lawyer and you can tell me, but I don't think that would change the things in this kind of voluntary association world. Uh, it would change things in the political election world. Um, well, I'm all for it, but I personally speaking, but I don't know that I think it's going to happen. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, I, the way I think about it is that um, I, I tend to back up and ask myself, to what degree do rising uh, economic inequalities and the kind of increased clout of money, especially money manipulated with information technology, um, does that create a hopeless situation? Uh, no, but it does make it harder, um, And but it's still the case. I mean, money has always talked in America. Um, and. It's just that in the past, the ability of the majority to organize and to convey messages through their organizations mattered and counterbalanced that and softened it to some degree. Um, 
when I think about political reform and, and civic reform now, it's, it seems to me that rather than trying to pursue uh, a legal strategy of getting the Supreme Court to change its mind, especially now, it's better to organize. But I know that's an old-fashioned uh, way of thinking about things. Uh, yes. Well, the ladies were electing officials too in their own. Well, if we look at the vast array of membership associations that held sway from the mid-19th to mid-20th century America, there was quite a variety. I mean, included in that, in, in a, I should have brought the little sheet that gives the list of all the largest associations in American history because people do find it fascinating. It's in my book, uh, uh, Diminished Democracy, um, which is available in paperback. Um, the Some of them were unions and farm groups, which would have been talking kind of explicit policy and power questions. Some of them were uh, women's associations, vast women's associations, which would have talked about a whole array of public issues as well as things about how to care for families and, and communities. Um, many of them were uh, a kind of association that really is distinctively prolific in American history, and that is male fraternal groups, uh, the Masons, the Oddfellows, the Elks, the Moose, the Eagles, the Knights of Pythias, the Improved Order of Redmen, who were white men who dressed up like Indians. Um, and these male fraternal groups would not have done, for the most part, explicitly political things, except the Eagles were involved in a whole series of social welfare campaigns. Most of what they did was to hold weekly or biweekly meetings, conduct a ritual, engage in decisions about who to bring on as members, occasionally engage an issue about their community, especially raising educational scholarships, perhaps, or doing some civic improvement uh, uh, things. So the political effects would usually have been byproducts. Then there were the military veterans associations, which certainly were involved in politics in all of its aspects, um, and uh, various kinds of civic improvement associations. It's a lot of different kinds of groups, some of which were more explicitly political, some of which were less so. Um, chapter three of my book talks about this whole array of groups and talks about the fact that they all kind of shaped citizen capacities and motivations. A subset of them, roughly half, were more explicitly engaged, especially in legislative campaigns. Um, so there's no simple answer. Now, what, many Americans belong to multiple groups. So the chances that they would belong to at least one that was involved in some kind of direct political um, discussion or mobilization would be quite great.
You know, I can't really do that. I mean, if you go to that place in Bob's book, it's a little murky. Uh, you know, there's no real statistical model there. And he tried. He didn't really get a statistical model. So he has a pie chart. I mean, you will have noticed that as a historical institutionalist, which is what I am, I tend to think much more in terms of interactions. So if we're going to translate to the statistics, we'd have to be looking at interaction effects. Um, and I am willing to say that I think that the prime mover is a series of changes in the choices and opportunities facing elites who organize groups. And the closest I've come to actually trying to pin that down a little bit is an article that I did with some colleagues that appears in Studies in American Political Development, where we took, um, we took this data from on the Massachusetts uh, Senate, where there, the, the, uh, the, affiliate, the civic association affiliations of these elite people, highly educated, wealthy people, over 100 years are listed. And you can array it chronologically, and you can see what plays out when. And we're able to show that, um, First of all, the changes are sudden. They are not gradual, which means they don't fit very well with a model that points to these kind of crescent mass changes. Um, right after the middle of the 1960s, when the various kinds of changes in elite thinking and elite opportunity structures that I'm pointing to would have occurred, that's when you see these elites drop their memberships, just drop them. It goes from here, just like um, it's very striking. And they drop their memberships in all of these cross-class, gender and racially segregated uh, uh, fellowship federations. They start picking up an array, a much more scattered array, of professionally run service and advocacy groups. And we, we, we ran some statistical models, because there's some data in the bios, to see whether generation was explaining it or a period effect was explaining it. Uh, and we, were, we could control for a few other things. And it was much more a period effect, which is at least consonant with this kind of sudden elite thing. Uh, between 65 and 75 is when I Very suddenly. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, sure, but what do you think? I mean, you think that people always join these things just for personal motivations? I mean, it was, this is all part of a system of political prestige and power. And then the other thing that we did was we compared the elite choices that are documented in this data with the mass trends for membership in a few of the groups that were the most common, like the American Legion, the Elks, I can't remember, there were several. And we showed that the elites dropped them before the mass did. So, you know, that's not perfect. It's not going to satisfy your desire for, a, you know, a perfect statistical model. I don't think anybody else has either. So, uh, but, we, but have I tried to pin it down empirically? Sure. And the technique that, that us historical institutionalists tend to use is we try, we sort of grab any kind of empirical data we can find and we try to see whether the implications of our theory fit the patterns in multiple kinds of data. All I can say is that it, it does to a considerable degree. Um, but um, would I want to say that television watching by the population is not involved in this? Of course I wouldn't, because part of the w reason that you can organize other kinds of groups is that you can use television to send messages. So television affects the behavior of elites as well as, uh, as, as potential members. Uh, all I would say is I think it's an interaction between what what masses of people are prepared to choose to do 
and what organizers are offering them the choice to do. Wow, that killed the discussion right there. All right. Uh, all right. We are on a half hour on this campus. All right. Yeah. I, I want to thank uh, Theta Scotch Pool. Theta is going to be in the building for another 40 minutes or so, and I invite all of you to come and talk more or less informally now with her. Thank you very much for coming.